back with another six-episode series of the Plowcast, where we'll be discussing the most recent issue of Plow Magazine and talking with a wide variety of contributors. Thanks for tuning in. Very excited about this issue. It's about the natural world and our relationship as human beings to it, so there's a lot to cover. I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor of the Plow Quarterly, and this is the Plowcast. So the main thing that I can remember slightly wanting to make fun of you of when you sent me the first draft of your editorial was the fact that I was it was like the third paragraph into this thing and you were still talking about your dog, essentially. I mean, general dogs in general, but it was about Hector. It was about Hector, but it really was about a deeper issue raised by Hector, especially his expressive eyebrows, which I think we could talk about a bit because I love talking about Hector. But we'll also be talking later in this episode with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, Mm -hmm. not about dogs, but about ticks and aliens and whether natural law is played out. Yes, this is the tick, alien, and dog issue of Plow. Possibly aliens. Um... Yeah, and before we dive in, if you have any questions that you'd like us to discuss in the final episode of this podcast, or this series of podcasts, let us know um, on Twitter with the hashtag, uh, hashtag Book of Creatures, or if you don't do Twitter, send us an email at info at plow.com. And now to the conversation. So, Pete, how about this editorial of yours? Well, the expressive eyebrows, I mean, this is old research, actually, uh-huh. that came out in 2019 in... Uh, a bunch of outlets, but was originally published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, mm-hmm. and it was about dogs' eyebrows, which I'm always fascinated by stories about evolution in general, but mm-hmm. definitely about dog evolution, because mm-hmm. my Brittany Spaniel Hector is four years old okay. and a big part of the Momsen family's life, and it was about how did dogs... M- develop these facial features because wolves do not have that. Dogs, as we know, are descended from wolves Mm -hmm. 30,000 years ago. They kind of split off and started hanging out with human beings. And wolves, although they can be domesticated Mm -hmm. and develop some kind of relationship to uh, their masters, do not have that same emotional, expressive, uh, communicative quality that a dog does. They don't gaze at you. They do not gaze at you. No, they do not gaze at you. They're kind of... Like, they have a relationship-building problem Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, with human beings, which dogs do not. And there's actually, and this is what they got into, there's actually muscles in around the eyes of dogs that allow them to make puppy eyes that Mm -hmm. have these expressive eyes. So you could say what their dogs managed to do is essentially hack into this human emotion of care And specifically, what dogs apparently are able to do is mimic the expression of a young child. So when a dog looks at you, it really is kind of hacking into your hopefully natural Uh uh, response when you see a a kind of sad, pleading child of of just letting your heart melt. And dogs do that. They they do. So the reason I was interested in this, too, though, (laughs) apart from just the question that every dog owner always ask themselves, does my dog really love me or does the dog only seem to love me? Mm-hmm. Is this just an evolutionary hack to get food out of me? <laughs> uh, it's because it kind of intrigued me. You know, if you go back over the history of humankind's relationship to nature, mm-hmm. there's always kind of been a sense by human beings till quite recently that nature has a meaning, that we can have a connection to it, that... Uh, when we relate to living creatures, there's something good and meaningful mm-hmm. in that relationship. And of course, that's the root of, you know, most polytheistic religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, sh- Shinto or mm-hmm. uh, kinds of um, Taoism. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of sense that there's something to the universe that has meaning. And if you think about it in terms of dogs, you think about it, here's the, the dog is the symbol of loyal companionship. Mm-hmm. Um but if this is purely a matter of certain kind of wolves developing an eye muscle mm-hmm. that happens to stimulate human emotion, mm-hmm. um, it's essentially meaningless, right? Yeah. And it kind of reflects a wider sense of meaninglessness mm-hmm. that people, I think, have been kind of feeling toward nature ever since sort of the popularization of the theory of evolution, certainly, but also just uh, throughout that, modernity, yeah. right? that there's this kind of alienation that it really is just kind of mechanistic. And in the same sense, the dog's expression when it looks at you isn't really loving. It's just a mechanical or a kind of random Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. adaptation of certain muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, so to nature in general, when we look at it, isn't really beautiful. What we're really seeing is when you look at a beautiful landscape is we're rem- reminded of, you know, a fertile, fruitful area of the savannah deep in our yeah. evolutionary past. And it doesn't really mean anything. Right. So what I was then doubling back to the dog and, you know, to Hector is uh-huh. what I found really intriguing and it doesn't prove anything, but to me it indicates something. The researchers then did a second step and they actually measured they took samples from both the dogs and their owners mm-hmm. after they interacted mm-hmm. and they found that both dogs and their owners um, experienced a, a, a surge in a biochemical compound oxytocin mm-hmm. that causes pleasure mm-hmm. so after showing affection to mm-hmm. each other causes pleasure so that's the question is it does it cause pleasure or is it like a correlation between like a, a chemical surge and our experience of pleasure is this this is the question of nothing buttery is it nothing but a chemical or is it something that a chemical is correlated with so we can't resolve that uh-huh. but this biochemical signature does show us that mm-hmm. to the extent that our love for our child mm-hmm. is real uh-huh. our love for our dog is to a lesser degree, also real, and that dog's love for us is also is real. Also real yeah. Unless we're going to say that we don't actually love kids, mm-hmm. in which case, you know, you, you, you have much bigger problems, yeah. right? So we cannot prove that with this, but we can say that there is a genuine, uh, uh, you know, biochemically speaking, a genuine mm-hmm. matter of affection between us and our dog. So, okay, but you could say, okay, well, where does this bring us? And why are we even talking about this? Well, it's our creature issue for mm-hmm. one, so dogs matter. But more broadly, how does nature matter to us? And mm-hmm. what is our relationship really to nature? Because mm-hmm. it seems to me that there is a crisis in our relationship to nature, which plays out too in the relationship to human nature. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, Pope Benedict most notably talked about that back in 2011 in an address to the German Bundestag where he talked about how the modern ecological movement has rediscovered something important in seeing an intrinsic value in the natural world, Mm -hmm. but that needs to be expanded to seeing an intrinsic value in the givenness of human nature Mm -hmm. and the creatureliness of humans. And we're going to get into some of those topics more deeply later in later episodes of this podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to do that right now, but I, I do want to talk about today the matter of just reading nature. Mm -hmm. Um, So my editorial is called the book of the creatures. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what you thought about that whole metaphor of creation as a book, because I hadn't realized what deep roots it has in Jewish and Christian tradition. Yeah, I find it fascinating. And I also, like, the way that we, there are a couple of different ways that we can think of it, and just the very specific, like, dogs mean loyalty, or um, mountains mean majesty. Like, there's a kind of um, actual grammar or or, uh, rhetoric of symbolism of natural symbolism in um you know in images in in christian history and in art history but also just there's also this sense of when we are actually in nature when we're you know taking a walk outside when we're when we're perceiving um the sort of the created order there's a sense of seeing the world as a cosmos seeing seeing the universe as a cosmos not just as a kind of batch of random chemicals that happen to be strung together um which is like this is a very natural way to see the universe but i almost feel as though um it's something that we have to we've had i've had to rediscover like almost i've had to get new eyes in order to be able to see what i originally was able to perceive but which after you know you learn that will actually you know, the sun does not rise. We are, in fact, not at the center of the universe. Um, there's there are all these kind of like debunking moments in in our lives, in perception in our perception of nature, where we kind of like are told through at least if you're not particularly raised Christian, 
that everything that you perceive as meaningful is not actually meaningful. It's it's just there. It's all a succession of tooth fairies yeah, to yeah. be disproved. Yeah, it's it's all tooth Santa fairies Claus. and Santa Claus. Yeah. In the Christian tradition, that idea of nature as a book that you can read mm-hmm. uh, is kind of derived from scripture but was developed especially by the desert fathers uh, first of all i believe I, I read a beautiful article that traced it back to anthony the great the mm-hmm. egyptian hermit who lived in the wilderness for decades mm-hmm. and presumably was well acquainted with nature mm-hmm. and he spoke about the book of nature and that kind of metaphor mm-hmm was developed throughout Christian history in a way that I hadn't realized what mm-hmm. a big, uh, a long tradition that was, because it's one that isn't all that familiar to, I think, many people mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. How central that was, uh, one of the most signal and, and, you know, kind of pithy summations of it is from Augustine of Hippo. And we actually put this quote on the back of our issue. I did want to read it. He, Augustine wrote, Some people, in order to find God, will read a book. But there is a great book, the book of created nature. Look carefully at it top and bottom. Observe it. Read it. God did not make letters of ink for you to recognize him in. He set before your eyes all these things he has made. Why look for a louder voice? And this is from one of the premier interpreters of written scripture who is basically saying, look around you, look outside, look at the trees and the bees and the birds in the sky. And this goes, of course, way beyond Christianity, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned Taoism. I mentioned Mm -hmm. Shintoism. Uh, You could uh, talk about classical philosophy as well, right? Uh, Aristotle's whole idea of... Uh, there being a, a goal, a telos to life yeah. that you can discern through observing the world around you. Or that we can, that there's a world of the forms that we can, there's a form of the dog that Hector is an instantiation of. Well, I think Hector is, is the form, is the platonic, he the, the, the incarnated yeah. form of yeah. the dog. <laughs> but that's not the case for most people. For most people, this is not obvious today. Mm-hmm. For most people, this is, if anything, a, a, a kind of pretty, almost embarrassing metaphor Mm -hmm. that you would look at a beautiful sunset and be so naive as to think that your feelings of Mm -hmm. you know pleasure at seeing the sun setting Mm -hmm. over the sea or over a mountain Mm -hmm. or whatever can tell you anything Mm -hmm. about what the universe is really like i mean i hate to once again bring up c.s lewis i'm just going to bring up c.s lewis you're allowed to bring up uh, c.s it's just going to happen it's going to keep happening and we once or twice per podcast fine but I'm just remembering the beginning of The Abolition of Man, where he's talking about um, the kind of debunkery of what he calls the Green Book, this kind of very bad, annoying um, sort of literary textbook that he was given to review. And the authors who he pseudonymizes because he trashes them so badly, called Gaius and Titius, um, say that they, I think they're like analyzing a piece, something from Coleridge, and Coleridge. Um, talks about the the awesomeness of a of a mountain peak or something like this as Coleridge tends to do might have been Wordsworth and Gaius and Titius say you know it it is one of the things that we need to realize in literary analysis is that when a poet talks of the awesomeness of a mountain peak he's not talking about something that's in the mountain he's talking about he's having feelings of awesomeness of of sort of majesty and Lewis is like well this is actually and that is kind of our modern assumption. Like, sure. there's no everything is a path- pathetic fallacy. Everything is a pathetic fallacy. There's no actual majesty in a mountain. It's just a big rock. If there's majesty, it's because we are having majestic feelings. And Lewis points out that that is like that's a philosophical position that has to that would have to be defended. And it's certainly not our actual experience. A, B, we don't actually have majestic feelings when we look at a mountain. We have humble feelings. We like we perceive the mountain itself as majestic, and we ourselves feel humbled in comparison with it and it might be the case that there is a correct response which we might need to cultivate in ourselves to that kind of awe in nature and because that's like actually an accurate way of perceiving the world like you know if if we are not seeing the mountain as awesome as majestic we might not be seeing it properly in the way that like you know if i'm not seeing that as green i might not be seeing it properly um, there's something there in the world as opposed to just in our, in myself. And we won't get into like 
optics. You, you mentioned the need to, to cultivate this yeah. ability to perceive mm-hmm. meaning in nature, which seems to fly in the face of what Augustine is saying, mm-hmm. right? That you, you just it just kind of comes naturally. But And I was asking myself in the editorial too, why is it that we have such trouble? Why do we need to cultivate something uh-huh. that used to just come naturally to people? Uh-huh. Uh, and I think there is actually a good reason. And one of it is is simply that we're out of practice, that most people live in environments where they're not naturally in touch with nature. And mm-hmm. you can read the studies on this. You know, um, the less than 1% of American families live on farms now, so mm-hmm. very few people kind of work with animals day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of hunters have, the share of ha- American hunters has halved over the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Um and I actually read an astounding uh, statistic that only 20% of Americans can see the Milky Way from where they live. Yeah, so, so the entire idea that the psalmist talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God, 80% of people are not seeing the heavens, the heavens as declaring yeah. anything. It's just sort of a murky, you know, a murky sky. And very few of us are seeing the heavens the way they would have been seen over the desert. No, well, even here in upstate New York, we're not seeing that. Not even in upstate New York. No, not even in upstate New York. But before we get into some of those more contentious issues, there's another really beautiful essay that we're not going to dive too far into Mm -hmm. today. It's by Ian Marcus Corbin, and it's called The Abyss of Beauty. And it's talking about exactly this experience of experiencing nature and it meaning something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'd like to kind of stay with that Mm -hmm. uh, experience because this essay, which is just gorgeously written Mm -hmm. and takes us on a tour through Vaclav Havel, uh, Dostoevsky, Melville, and a host of others. Augustine again. Augustine again. Um, Adam Zagajewski, the Polish poet. But it's really about this, and it's really about an experience that Ian himself had. He's a writer for Plough. I believe he's... uh, Can you give Ian's background? So he's in... um... He's in the Boston area, and he's got a couple of kids, and he's kind of a writer slash suburban dad. Um, and in this essay, he talks about um, just sort of his own experience with like a little tiny bit of essentially suburban nature, and he compares that to Václav Havel's um, experience. That what, do you want to read this quote? Right. So um, Havel is been locked up and he's serving a four-year prison term this is after uh soviet repression in the czech republic where he was of course a leader and later became president so it's the late i think late 70s maybe 1980 and he's writing to his wife olga from a prison in uh herzmanitze he's just gone to the courtyard and he describing to her this particular moment I call to mind that distant moment when on a hot cloudless summer day I sat on a pile of rusty iron and gazed into the crown of an enormous tree that stretched with dignified repose up and over all the fences, wires, bars and watchtowers that separated me from it as I watched the imperceptible trembling of its leaves against an endless sky I was overcome by a sensation that is difficult to describe All at once I seemed to rise above all the coordinates of my momentary existence in the world into a kind of state outside time in which all the beautiful things, the forms, I have ever seen and experienced existed in a total co-present. I felt a sense of reconciliation, indeed of an almost gentle ascent, to the inevitable course of events as revealed in me now, and this combined with a carefree determination to face what had to be faced. And I won't continue to the mm-hmm. very end of this quote but Havel in this moment in this courtyard in a prison with nothing to look forward to mm-hmm. um, his cause of fighting for the liberation of his country apparently frustrated right mm-hmm. um, had this moment and he was not a believer by the mm-hmm. way and in fact never became one he never really could mm-hmm. but he did not give up the sense that mm-hmm. this 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 moment he had you know, told him something about the true nature of the universe that he wouldn't be argued out of. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, you ever had this Havel moment, Susanna? <laughs> I've I've had Havel moments like this, both in nature, but also this is the weird part. It, I've also had those kinds of experiences in in the city. So I grew up in Manhattan, and um, I, one of the kind of most powerful experiences of my childhood was I can remember it was like it was September or something, and it was. Um, I think I was looking out kind of over New Jersey, um, which is not always the most inspiring thing, but in this moment was. And there was that kind of like pink afternoon New York light on the buildings across across the Hudson. And um, it felt to me, and, and I, I was like on the, so I was on, on Riverside Park and there were all these, there are all these sort of gorgeous Beaux-Arts um, apartment buildings. And it felt to me like I was seeing through the city into another place. And I kind of still to this day have bits of that perception when I'm walking around the city. And it was completely inexplicable to me. It was, it had that same sense of incredible joy and incredible beauty and legibility. Like I was, like I was reading the city. This was the form of New York. This is the form of New York. And it was, um, I, I, Let's go fully C.S. Lewis. This is the this further is, up and further in. This is in, the further up and further, further in, in Manhattan. New York. Yeah, right. so this is like Inwood Park. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, I I was puzzled by this for a really long time. And it was actually only after I didn't become a Christian for probably another 10 years. And once I did and kind of learned about the doctrine of the New Jerusalem as this, you know, the... The Calipolis, the city that we are in fact headed for, I, I'm pretty sure. Like what I had just seen was like the like the New Jerusalem through New York, and I still kind of see it that way. <laughs> um, so it's not, you know, it's not. And I have had those experiences in nature as well, but I do think it's possible to have them in cities. Well, this I think sets us up very well for our conversation with our guest Ross Dowsett. <laughs> so we'll be right back. Well, we're welcoming Ross Douthat, a New York Times columnist, author, and plow contributor. And we're going to continue our, our conversation about whether we can actually learn anything from nature about how to live our lives. So welcome, Ross. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. And there's so many things we want to talk about. We want to talk about natural law, which is kind of weighty. We want to talk about bad things in nature, from COVID to deer ticks. And possibly uh, something to do with your upcoming book, Ross. And we want to talk about UFOs, which That's our, yeah. are they part of nature or are they not? That covers the range, I think. After this podcast, no further conversation about any topic will be that. No, I mean, this is it. We are, this is the final piece of content. Maybe we should start, though, with the one that is possibly weightiest. I'm not sure if it is. And that's natural law. So we were talking earlier, Suzanne and I, um, about... The patristic authors, starting with Anthony the Great, Basil of Caesarea, Augustine, who all talk about nature as this book uh, that you can read. It's accessible to all, uh, even without revelation, even for someone who can't read. They expected that we can kind of look at nature and much as the Apostle Paul um, said as well, that we can learn from it facts about the universe, um, that there is a meaning to life facts about who we are and, and who God is. There's a new book out by Carter Sneed um, that many of, of our readers have read, um, The Argument from the Body, where he ta- tr- attempts to deal with some of these difficult uh, bioethical questions, whether it be gene editing, abortion, or uh, assisted suicide, um, in a way that's attentive to the reality of the body. And yet, even reading that, I sometimes got the sense that, who's going to listen to this? Mm-hmm. Um, is it, is it going to change anyone's mind? Yeah, well, I guess th- those are incredibly big and sweeping questions. So I'll try and, I guess, offer some totally idiosyncratic thoughts that don't necessarily resolve anything. But so, I mean, first, my own view, well, one, I don't think it's totally true, right, that people don't experience nature as some kind of book sort of freighted with intimations of divinity anymore. Um you know, I, I think that they, I think that, that that experience has been somewhat unmoored from Christianity and from sort of the biblical narrative. 
Um, but I don't think you have to go very deep into either the environmentalist movement or just sort of the run of like popular spirituality books that, you know, um, you can find uh, at your local Barnes and Noble, which you should you should patronize to keep Amazon from destroying it, right? Um, we've reached the point where we're desperately trying to keep the chain bookstores alive to, you know, defeat the online bookstore. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think American religion as sort of a popular phenomenon is still shot through with sort of connections between the grandeur of the mountaintop and the, you know, the whispering in the deep forest and some kind of spiritual understanding of of the universe. Um, it's just that, you know, in certain ways, going back to Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman to sort of New England transcendentalism, right, which you can see as um, sort of a forerunner of a lot of American spirituality today, it's not that book is not seen as pointing per se to the Christian God. It's seen as sort of a revelation of sort of spiritual, sort of direct unmediated spiritual experience as a path to sort of personal growth and fulfillment that has some kind of connection to um, the numinous and supernatural, but doesn't, you know, doesn't confirm a particular anthropology or a particular set of um, religious dogmas. And so why, and so why, why you've had that Severing is an interesting question. Um, I mean, I, I think fundamentally there is in elite circles, um, the kind of people who maybe look down on some of the pop spirituality I've been, I've been just talking about a sort of harder materialism where there's sort of, you know, an outright rejection of the idea that you can see any kind of divine plan in the universe and the idea that now you have to just sort of accept that it's all just matter in motion and so on. I, I think that view is does sort of reflect a kind of um, ideological blinkeredness that, you know, probably has something to do with sort of technological disconnections from reality, but I think has more to do with sort of the particular intellectual and material culture of the American intelligentsia. Um, but I, I don't have the exact answer for why that kind of materialism prevails so much on like, you know, in among Ivy League faculty, for instance, I, I think about this a lot because these are people I work with and people I write for at the New York Times. But I mean, basically the sort of a, the simplest version of the argument that, you know, a orderly, law-bound, beautiful cosmos that most importantly, in a way, yields itself to the human mind, right? The, the legibility point that you made earlier seems to me a tremendously powerful argument for the existence of God and some sort of deep connection between whatever mind or intelligence created the universe and our particular minds. Like the fact that our minds, you know, are sort of a key that can unlock the fundamental laws of physics is just a crazy thing when you, when you think about it in strictly material forms. Oh, you know, this evolved, this evolved ape on a random planet can grasp the mysteries of the universe. I mean, that to me has always seemed like a very powerful um, argument, a sort of, you know, pro-God, if you will, kind of argument. Um, I do think the breakdown, there's something with Darwinism that creates a breakdown and there's sort of a superficial version of that, which is that people are like, oh, Darwin explained where life came from, so we don't need God anymore, which is mostly dumb. And then there's the more sophisticated argument, which is that Darwinism calls into question Christian anthropology, which I, I think is more plausible, right? That like, you know, what Darwin tells us is not that, you know, God didn't create the universe or that the universe isn't a law bound orderly system or anything like that. But Darwinism is a story about how human beings came to be. And it's a story in which we came to be through a combination of, you know, ruthless predation by animals over, you know, millennia, not millennia, millions of years, combined with a lot of, you know, mutations and accidents in our genetic code. Um, and I think it's out of that that you get people sort of are on a more serious level saying like, well, you know, if I believe in that narrative, then why should I treat 
well, I guess to the Carter Sneed book, like why, why should I treat sort of human nature as this kind of given, this sort of God-given reality if human nature has come into being through this process of predation and mutation? Um, what, you know, what is, wh why do we need to see the human body as it exists now as sort of directed towards particular ends that, you know, if you deviate from those ends, you're falling into sin and error when it seems clear that the human body, whatever role God might've had in it is a sort of accidental and flawed thing, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, that's sort of, I, I think that's sort of how Darwinism enters into this less as a challenge to the idea of some kind of God or order in the universe and more as a challenge to the idea that like human anthropology is a book that we can read and sort of interpret as sort of natural law would have us do. How have you, is that something that like you found as a challenge to your faith or uh, to your understanding of the world and how have, it sort of has been for me a little bit, although not that badly, but like, how have you thought through some of those questions? Like, do you think those are good arguments? What are the kind of counter arguments? So I, it, it is, I mean, I think if you ask me to identify um, the main, into, the, the intellectual challenge to Christianity in the modern era that I take most seriously, it's that one, I think. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that it sort of affects my, faith precisely it's more like it's you know it's a it's a problem that i think has not been adequately thought through and sort of successfully resolved um and i think you would expect problems like that to come along in the history of a religion and it's only been 150 years since darwin which is you know a wink of an eye in terms in terms of christian history um but i, I think it's sort of the idea of you know original sin in particular right that that um, that you sort of, that, that is on the one hand, so on the one hand, I have sort of this intuitive sense that like the Chestertonian quip, right? That original sin is the only Christian doctrine that is empirically verifiable, right? Like that seems to be totally true. And I think there is, there is something, if you look at sort of human history, there is uh, some kind of tendency towards evil in us that is not adequately explained just by sort of selfishness and self-interest, right? Like that doesn't get you, you know, that gets you people being jerks. It doesn't get you sort of some of the, the deep perversity of the human heart. And I think the doctrine of original sin does a lot of effective work explaining that reality. Um, at the same time, like the basic idea that, you know, sin and death enter the world with the first human family is you know, it, it's genuinely hard to square with um, an evolutionary account of human origins. Um, at the very least, you can't say that death enters the world, right? You have to do a sort of theory that animal death is not an evil. And C.S. Lewis has written a bit about this, right? That, like, you know, sort of these arguments with, but Lewis obviously as, you know, the father of Narnia <laughs> tends to think that animal death is an evil. But if animal death is an evil, well, then where does that come from? Well, maybe it comes from Lucifer's rebellion, maybe there's an original fall and then a secondary fall, or maybe the crazier idea is that the fall is an event in human history that ripples backward in time as well as forward in time. But then it's like, but then you're in territory of, you know, well, you know, in Adam's fall, the archaeological record was rewritten, right, to make this a look more, look like the fallen world that it became. Now, then you're into territory, I think that while you know, it could be true. I don't think you would expect a casual non-believer to, to buy into those kind of arguments. Um, but, but yeah, I think it is, I think there is, there is a sort of moral theological problem there. And the, the basic idea that human beings evolved from, from animal life, I think is not a challenge to the idea of a benevolent creator God. It's the particular mechanisms involved that create that create the challenge and that's sharpened right with for instance some of the recent genetic research showing you know significant neanderthal dna in many modern human populations which begs the question of where that animal human line actually came to be uh -huh. um and which of our our four parents uh 
were on the other side of the animal human line. Um, did right, which grandpa didn't have a soul? Right, right. But this is I, I think none of this is incompatible with Genesis, right? Yeah. Like it, it's if you just read Genesis, it, it strip strip away sort of the the assumptions that Christians bring to the text. Just read Genesis flat out. I don't think anyone, no one would one read the first two books of Genesis and be like, well, this is obviously a literal account of like the moment by moment creation of the world. You have two separate creation accounts that seem to be doing very different things theologically. And, you know, and then you get to that that famous moment, right, where, you know, Cain is kick, kicked out of the first family and he goes off and gets married and, and starts building cities. Um, so I, I think, and, you know, to say nothing of the Nephilim and, you know, all, all the other sort of odd characters hanging around that narrative. So I think Genesis itself is totally compatible with Neanderthals, with, you know, with, with a, with a sort of very complicated origin story for humanity that is distilled in these particular stories. Again, it's the reading, it's the traditional Christian reading, especially around, you know, the idea of what, what the fall did to human nature. Um, I think that's more, more of the direct challenge. This actually takes us to our next topic, perhaps. <laughs> uh, if we're able to read the book of nature and see the truths of it, what is it that we read? Uh -huh. And I think that's what also bothers people. Uh, when we read the book of nature, do we read of of beauty and, and goodness? Um, do we read um, all things bright and beautiful or do we read more like Monty Python did, you know, all things squat and ugly? Yeah. Um, what, what are the things in nature that are actually there, both in their own nature, right? Uh -huh. When you read human nature, do you see um, the image of God or do you see a predatory animal where, you know, males act like male primates do and, um, the females have to put up with it, for instance. Um, and, and I guess you, you know, in this after a year of pandemic, mm -hmm. um, you look at, you read nature uh, and you see, you, you might read COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder how much is it that when we look at nature, we've kind of been conditioned perhaps too much to see natural evil. Do you think that's kind of gnawing at people? Yeah, so I mean, so that's, Definitely true. It is one of the weird things about the modern world, though, right, that as we have become more protected from natural evil, we have tended to focus more on it seemingly as a theological problem, right? So like, you know, the, the village getting wiped out by the plague, right? It was actually a lot worse. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot worse, right? Than than the any than the you know COVID nineteen even and certainly any of sort of the normal run of events in twenty first century America, and yet it does seem like for at least for sort of intellectuals in the modern age, it's more offensive to their idea of divine goodness to have you know to have the suffering that we have than it would have been somehow to similarly situated thinkers in the Middle Ages. Now, you know, that's not entirely true. Like, I mean, the, the, the Lisbon earthquake, right, in the 17th century famously sets off like a run of sort of theodicy arguments and people, you know, making fun of the idea that this is the best of all possible worlds, right? So it's not, it's not a novelty of the 20th century by any means. Um, and you can find similar arguments in, in the classical world too. Um, but it, it, does, it does seem like, you know, in certain ways you would think, well, as natural evils diminish, we would worry less about that argument. But in fact, the opposite seems to be, seems to be the case. Um, but, you know, I mean, fun fundamentally, and this is, again, sort of raises, raises some questions about the fall and its purposes, right? But I, I think fundamentally it's hard to get out of the, the conclusion that, like, um, well, I don't know, David Bentley Hart is going to like appear behind my shoulder and clobber me <laughs> with, a, with a book for saying this. Um, but you know, the idea that like suffering is pur purposive, right? That there is, that there, that there is a reason, 
even if God does not will the particular evil by his direct will, there is a reason that he allows us to live in a world that includes not only human sins, not only our own chosen follies, like maybe re-engineering the coronavirus in the labs of Wuhan, right? But also, also sort of the basic run of natural evils. I, I find it hard to escape that, that conclusion, right? That, you know, and, and, and that's sort of what you get. Um, there was a, there was a good piece um, by, um, who's the biographer of Thomas Aquinas? Dennis, uh, um, Dennis Taylor. See, my mind, my mind does not work. Um, Dennis Turner. I was so close. Dennis Turner wrote a piece on um, Julian of Norwich, I think, recently. Um, just going to try and try and pull it up. Um, and it was a. It was sort of you know she's the, she's the famous right the 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 mystic famous for saying you know all will be well and all will be well. Man. He, he wrote it right in all manner of things will be well. Well, maybe he wrote a book and someone else reviewed it. See, maybe I'm mixing this up. Um, this, this shows you. Anyway, perhaps someone reviewing a book by Dennis Turner on Julian of Norwich made a version of this point. But, but just that it was sort of an exercise in bullet biting, right? That saying like, you know, that Julian of Norwich does not have sort of a sentimentalized account of divinity and in fact seems to struggle deeply with you know why god allows bad things to happen and so on and her conclusion of, of all being well is somehow the idea that you know it is sort of a version of like actually you have to trust god that this is the best of all possible worlds earthquakes and sufferings and holocausts um included and that that is a i think a very i mean there are good reasons why it's a hard bullet to bite because then anyone who has not suffered the absolute worst is in a position of seeming to sort of like say pious treacle to people right. who have lost children or lost their entire families or suffered for decades with a terrible illness. And nobody wants to be the person saying that. Um, and yet it, it seems hard to avoid saying it to some extent. I mean, this is why to me, the, the fact of Job being the earliest book of the Bible is bizarrely comforting because like the, you know, the sort of hideous things that happened to him and the sense that like this, the sense that he has of like, God, what is going on? Are you, are you in control of the, the sort of um, sequence of hideous events in my life and God coming back with a description of his own kind of creative ordering of the world, like in, yep. in kind of macro nature, including um, his kind of being in charge of, you know, the ocean, which is sort of this representation of chaos and evil, um, and, you know, sporting with Leviathan is this kind of macro right at the beginning of our faith tradition statement of we are aware of the cosmic nature of the screw up that we seem to be living through. And we are not going to flinch from that or try to, you know, do a kind of Job's friend's happy explanation sort of Leibniz like explanation of things um right. there's the kind of bullet that's bit right at the beginning in Job that I think you know and then Julian obviously she didn't she have some kind of like paralysis that periodically came on her that's like some kind of you know chronic illness of her own yeah but so but but you have that bullet biting but then I mean I, I think the what's what's so striking about Christianity, right, is that if you were just, again, if you were just sort of doing religion empirically, you would say some, probably say something like, okay, you're in this ordered cosmos that is, you know, ordered and beautiful, but also full of suffering um, and sort of evils that we don't understand. And so we should, we should assume that, you know, that ba basically there is a kind of a moral order that we can't grasp. Right, like I, I think if you just read Job, that alone, that would be the conclusion that you would draw. Mm -hmm. Right, that there's a a moral order that's sort of beyond the human mind's capacity to grasp, and we just have to deal with that fact and deal with the reality that our everyday experiences don't, see, you know, seem somewhat morally out of joint. Um, but it, the strong suggestion of the New Testament, I would say, is that. <laughs> 
actually, you know, no, I mean, our moral intuitions do correspond to like, you know, the way the world should be, you know, the poor should be lifted up and the sick should be healed. And, you know, that, that, that God, that God is, that God loves us in a more direct and personal way than you might get from him making bets with the devil at our expense at the start of, of Job. Right. And, and so, I mean, and so maybe in the sense, what I'm saying about Darwin and the fall, right. is just a sort of particular distillation of the, the, the general thing that Christianity asks you to do, which is basically say, you're gonna take the sort of empirics of reality and accept without understanding fully the revelation of Jesus Christ as an, a controlling interpretation, right? So absent that revelation, you would say, you know, God is just above us and we don't get it. And with that revelation, you have to say, no, there's, you know, God has an intent for the world. The world is somehow out of joint, but our sense of justice does correspond in some sense to God's sense of justice. And so we just can't, it just sort of deepens the mystery, I guess, because we can't quite figure out how that works. So you, Ross, um, are coming out with the book this fall, and I don't know how much you can say about it, but uh, it seems, from what I've seen of it, to uh, kind of spring from an encounter with the evils of nature uh, in the form of Lyme disease and, and deer ticks. Uh, so are you with Job or are you feeling New Testament as you think about uh, Lyme's disease? Well, I mean, so I, yeah, I've, I got sick um, almost six years ago now. Um, and the book is sort of an account of the illness and sort of the strange reality that Lyme sits at, in this sort of zone of controversy within medicine that, I think thanks to COVID era debates, maybe more people are familiar with how many zones of controversy in medicine there are, but you know, there's a huge debate about whether chronic Lyme disease is really Lyme disease at all, um, how you test for it, how you treat it. Um, and so I got very, very sick and have spent a substantial period of time doing some normal things and some very abnormal things trying to get better. Um, so in part, the book is sort of just a personal account of like what that's like and sort of figuring out, trying to basically be your own doctor to some extent with the help of some actual doctors. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, inevitably it also sort of overlaps with some of the preoccupations we've been talking about. Um, and, you know, I mean, one, one thing it, the experience has definitely done is pushed me away from what I think is a somewhat naively sentimentalized view of the natural world that you sometimes get both from sort of Emersonian, you know, sort of enthusiasts, but also from the, a certain kind of Christian critic of the modern world, right? Where, you know, there's sort of this, this desire, this sort of idea of sort of a return to nature as an alternative to the secularism of late modernity. Um, and, you know, I have some sympathies in that direction. I think there's, you know, real value in sort of the past, that sort of pastoralist tradition. Um, at the same time, you know, nature wants to kill you, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, your, your body in the woods with grass growing through it, like nature is fine with that. So what we're really uh, going for is the Semmelweis option, I think is, is the... <laughs> <laughs> the pasteur option yeah so so anyway so that's that's there's there's some sort of wrestling and reckoning with that i've become a little bit more of sort of a techno futurist probably probably in in response mm -hmm. to this experience than than i used to be but then yeah i mean i, I so less wendell berry less less ross and his bean yeah, rose with the bees buzzing around him you know, we we bought this house in the country. We were naive city folk. We were going to like have chickens and, you know, do do all the many things that, you know, the Bruderhof community. Yeah, you're, you're so talking well. you're talking to kind of a guy inclined that way. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I know. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, again, it's a wonderful and important tradition, but it just turned out that that was not what nature and God had in mind for me. And now you are becoming a transhumanist sea stutter. That's right. I am. I actually, as I, as we speak, my left arm is now an Android attachment. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I have a little more sympathy for the transhumanist and what I, but I also have, 
it's very hard, I would say, to experience a chronic illness as a religious person and just read it as a like, you know, an attack, you know, an attack from sort of the fallen side of the world. It's, you end up by necessity, maybe just psychological necessity, reading it as a kind of trial or testing or something that is in some sense offered to you by God as an opportunity. Um, I think it's very, it's very hard to avoid that theological interpretation when you're literally, you know, in, in the thick of it yourself. Well, I know that, I mean, this is returning to Carter Sneed's book, you know, a good friend of ours, live here in the community with us, you know, have a deeply disabled son, um, now age six or seven, um, who's just, you know, undergoing constant suffering, not able to speak. Um, and for parents um, in that situation to raise a son, to love him through, mm -hmm. to often not be able to help him when he's expressing discomfort can seem so pointless um, and so meaningless unless one would believe mm -hmm. that there's something to this suffering mm -hmm. that um, has a meaning, um, that there is a dignity to it and an honor to it. And really, their 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 whole life would literally make no sense were that not true. And and I it sounds like you experienced something like that, you know, in a different way. And that there is an end to it too. And that like part of what you know the New Testament is uh, more than implying to us is that it's not just that our suffering now has meaning. It's not just that God actually does love us in a personal and slightly less abstractly Job-like way, but it's also that our bodies, in fact, will be made new. Um, which, I mean, I can't imagine how that hits you post-Lyme, but it seems like that might start to sound like even better news than it might have previously. Yeah, you, you, your, your relationship to your body changes. And again, this is something, as you say, that lots of people live with you know as a lifelong thing um but but yeah it's definitely the the reality that you know i i have gotten a lot better um although i'm not fully well by any stretch um but the knowledge that like you might not get better right that like people can be sick for you know 50 years right just as people can be born with disabilities and so on like it, yeah i mean it it um it places a certain kind of weight, both on the hope of, of you know, the hope of the resurrection, but even just the idea of like being out of the body, right? Like if you read, if you read about, you know, near death experiences, right? And this feeling that people have when they leave their body behind. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of strange things about that literature. You don't want to put too much weight on it, but it definitely strikes me reading it now as opposed to 10 years ago like the feeling of relief that people sometimes describe it's like finally my soul is free <laughs> of this you know sort of this container it's been stuffed into um for x number of years like i i can i can relate to that in a way that i never would have when you know when your body just when you're young and your body just feels like it works for you right the the idea that like you might be limited by your body or sort of imprisoned inside your body is is not a thought that really it's something you can understand intellectually but not a thought you can sort of experience directly well while we're still together you know turning to a mystery of nature that is a little more uh just fun basically we just want we want you to talk about ufos ross we, we yeah. want we want to know what you think we're really psyched over here um, for the upcoming, is it like two weeks or two months or something, congressional report, um, you know, that is apparently going to be coming out, which may in fact be out by the time this podcast is released, who knows. Um, but you have in the past written a lovely Christmas column about UFOs and, and, fairies, and fairies, I believe. Yeah, I want to tread, uh, tread carefully with the fairies. Oh, I don't want you to, though. I mean, don't, first of all... They can be you ornery. Yeah. Um, you don't want to speak. Yeah, you, you don't want to speak um, that, you know, we can call them the, you know, the good people. The good people, right. So, so UFOs, right. So 
Yeah, I mean, I, my, my, my general view of all of these things is that when you have a persistent sort of paranormal phenomenon that, you know, has lots of accounts associated with it, and you drill down into it, you find, you know, X number of cases are, you know, dismissible, they're frauds, hoaxes, and just mistakes. Um, but when something is persistent, when it's sort of a persistent feature of human society, not just like, you know, a temporary panic or a one-off thing, there's usually some really hard to explain set of happenings close to the core of it. Um, and that's how I feel about near-death experiences. It's how I feel about demonic possession. It's how I feel about ghosts. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of a full spectrum supernaturalist in that sense. And UFOs is a distinctive case because it is- Are they supernatural? Right, it has features in common with supernaturalism in that it's, you know, it's a set of experiences that don't seem amenable to normal forms of scientific inquiry um, that, you know, involve sort of, you know, people having sightings and encounters um, that they have to report on to others. Um, but then it's something that, you know, because of what we know about space and the possibility of of extraterrestrial life, the idea of sort of things in the sky coming down to us seems more plausibly natural than, you know, the, uh, um, yeah, than, than sort of a given, a given sort of supernatural happening, right? Um, so, but, but now I, I've had a bunch of people with this latest batch of UFO things write to me and say, well, it seems really convenient that these, you know, weird lights or moving craft would only appear, you know, in restricted airspace, right, to be observed by U.S. military planes. Um, and my sense is that the reason this is getting so much attention is that it's a version of things that's, that actually happen all over the place. People have these experiences and not just since the atomic age which is sort of the the ground zero for real ufo stuff but you know going back to the 19th century and before people have these experiences all the time it's just that in this case we have them captured on multiple forms of high-tech equipment which is not what happens when you see an alien craft fly overhead when you're on a fishing trip you're not pulling out the like you know the, the drone, the, the aircraft radar to, to hunt it down. Um, so that, that's why I think that's what makes these things distinctive. And it's coming out of an institution that, you know, has for a long time been seen as sort of like, you know, sort of by conspiracy theorists denying this by normal people as like, you know, sort of debunking these encounters and act. And now that same institution is sort of turning on a dime. Um, now, with all that being said, like, it would not, you know, wouldn't be surprising if this was some phenomenon that we, you know, a natural phenomenon that was not man-made that we just didn't fully understand. Um, but it's pretty, yeah, I mean, it's pretty weird, you know. Um, I just can't get enough of watching these N Navy pilot videos, uh, especially the latest batch. They're, they're very human reactions to the to these things are, are really striking. Um, and of course, there's no reason, I think, from a Christian perspective that we shouldn't be able to imagine extraterrestrial life. We would have similar questions as the ones we were talking about before related to the fall and redemption and everything else with these species. And when you have Christian science fiction, whether it's Madeline Lengel or C.S. Lewis, there's often some, you know, a sense of like, well, some planets have fall are fallen and some aren't or the, you know, these kind of things. So there's a lot of interesting theological questions that would be raised. Um, but, you know, like you could imagine these being basically the equivalent of like drones that are dispatched, right? Like that, you know, we're sort of, they're sort of crafts sent out to observe other civilizations from a distance. Um, if you're trying to like fit alien behavior into some sort of motivational, normal human motivational framework, I think you would need to say something like that. Um, or they could be supernatural. And um, that's not, you know, the UFO believers, you know, sort of most of the serious ones draw the line at the supernatural, but you know, I don't, I don't. So, um, and, and there are really interesting parallels between descriptions of UFOs, UFO encounters, especially UFO abductions and stories associated with 
abductions by um, the good people, um, supernatural beings that are neither angels nor demons over the course of uh, pre-modern human history. That's a, a, just a really interesting continuity. And if you think it's all folklore, if you think none of it's real, then that sort of makes sense. Maybe there's like some sort of union archetype of, you know, of sort of abductions that get interpreted as aliens in a, the space age and as um, other creatures, the secret commonwealth in more supernaturally inclined ages. So that, that totally could be, or they could be similar because they're the same beings who like to mess with us, right? Um, and so I don't think you can, you can rule, I don't think you can rule out the possibility of a zone of the supernatural realm that, um, that messes with human beings without being like demonic in the way we yeah. understand that term. I mean, it also like, it sort of does kind of um, point to the question of like, what do we mean by supernatural? Because this is the creature's issue again of the magazine and what we know about, you know, for sure about both the good people and the UFOs if they exist, is that they're not the creators. So they are creatures. They are part of creation, yeah. um, as would ghosts be. But there is like this, we do have this like different sense of like aliens are kind of not supernatural, but the good people are. And that's, I'm not, I'm, I think that might just be like a quirk of content, like the modern mind. I don't think that's necessarily like a real distinction. No, and, and this is actually... But and and that works from the other end of the spectrum too. From like when I, I think I did Tyler Cowen's podcast, and I was sort of pressing him to, you know, consider supernatural possibilities. And he said, "Well, if you actually showed me that you know, ghosts existed or um, something similar, I would expect it to be some sort of multi-temporal, multi-dimensional feature of created reality that we didn't." fully understand as yet right so like if you prove to his satisfaction that a house could be haunted he would not necessarily accept like the immortality of the soul as thereby proven right so you yeah. there, there's a lot of yeah there, there's a lot of ways in which sort of strict natural supernatural binaries can be broken down either from a christian theistic point of view or from a agnostic skeptic point of view so we get back to what the soul is made out of right mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. what out of curiosity what are some of the parallels between the old uh fairy accounts don't and the ufo it. sightings don't say fairy i, I said fairy um, I, I, yeah don't don't say yeah respect show re respect so um, those other sightings and the new ones well, so one 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 thing that you get from I, I mean, I, there's a book called Voyage to Magonia that um, was written by a guy who was an early UFO obsessive who later decided. I think his theory was multi interdimensional travel, so it wasn't like you know classic mythological folklore accounts. It was this again this sort of zone of like science fiction meets the supernatural um but he 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 if you're if listeners i, I don't know i mean it, this is the other thing i'll, I'll say he, you want to be hesitant with this stuff right like one because you know you can become a insane conspiracy theorist who you know sees or a wb yates figure who's you know seeing seeing the good people everywhere but two I mean, Christians are not really supposed to like traffic in certain forms of supernaturalism that might be real, right? Like divination, right? Fortune telling might, you know, if you could tell the future, Christians would not be, would not, would still not be supposed to do it, right? So I, I'm actually a little hesitant. I read Voyage to Magonia while writing that column that you mentioned. Um, and when I was done with it, I was both fascinated and also felt like I maybe shouldn't should go too much farther into this yeah but i mean the parallels are just are sort of everything from you know sort of i mean the, again especially with abductions right like people wander off in the woods and there are lights and there is you know sort of i mean the the look the sort of elfin look is not that different from like some of the descriptive portraits of of aliens there's something called like a fairy blast that appears in folklore 
um, that has some similarities to um, um, things with, uh, with UFOs. There's also the sense of like trickery, like there are some UFO encounters where people are like, you know, that UFO, it almost looked fake, right? And again, if they are like US military, I mean, there's a, there's a whole plausible theory, right? Where, you know, where the army basically invented UFOs in order to have an excuse to test top secret equipment, right? And so, and then if anyone saw it, they'd be like, oh, it's crazy people talking about UFOs, right? So maybe that's true. And if that's true, it wouldn't be surprising that some of these encounters have this weird like fakery quality to them. Um, but the, the sense that like sometimes the aliens are kind of putting on a show for the rubes is something that shows up in like 17th century stuff too, I think, which is, you know, itself super weird. I think we're back to C.S. Lewis again. Yeah, this is... Uh, we were talking about C.S. Yeah, Lewis. We're, we're back there. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, I think I've, I've, you know, yeah, exposed too much crack pottery, I think. <laughs> well, you know, we, we were talking about Anthony the Great, who is the first mm -hmm. one to develop the idea, the metaphor of the Book of the Creatures. And he is, of course, famous for seeing both a centaur and a satyr and his journeys across the desert. And both of them begged him to convert them. So... Even even the good people. Yep, even back then. We need to found a missionary order. Um, that that should be the whatever whatever the UFOs are are. We need a missionary order and training for to people. to reach them. Okay, well that leaves us with work to do. Uh, <laughs> goodbye, Ross. <laughs> goodbye, guys. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.